plenty of football coming up on S4C, S Pedwarek over the next week or so. They've got the rights for the Wales under-21s games, which is brilliant. See the next batch of youngsters coming through. See if any are good enough to break into the first-team squad, Chris Coleman's squad, uh, in the next months and years, I guess. Uh, so Friday, 10th of November, 6 o'clock kickoff. So join the crew from 5.45 onwards against Bosnia. So that's a big game. A couple of days later on the Sunday, I'll be joining the crew. Uh, Sunday the 12th, the Iron Brew Cup. TMS against Queen of the South in what I think is the quarterfinal. I haven't had my homework pack yet. I think it's the quarterfinal, so TNS will be looking to win that game match. Um, their success last year of getting to the semi-finals, of course, they'll be looking to get uh, or to advance one step further, but a tough tie against Queen of the South to overcome first. 2.45 kickoff on Sunday, so join us from half past two onwards. And then a couple of days later, there's another game, another under-21s game. They face Romania. Uh, on the Tuesday night, the 14th of November, 6 o'clock. So, once again, join the crew from 5.45 on. Um, the Bosnia game and the Romania game, obviously, the first team will be in action uh, the same night, which is unfortunate. But catch the under-21s games before you get it stuck into the action with, with the first team and see how they're getting on. So, a um, little recap. Friday the 10th, 6 o'clock kickoff, Wales under-21s against Bosnia. Sunday the 12th, 2.45 kickoff, TNS against Queen of the South. Should be a good one. And then Tuesday the 14th, Wales under-21s against Romania. Hopefully we'll be seeing them in that Romania game on the back of a victory against Bosnia. So, nice little six points. Would set them up nicely, Robert Page's boys. Make sure you tune in. Rob, what a penalty for a young lad now strolling forward. Owen Tudor Jones. I bet he 12 months ago, if he'd have said to him, you're going to need to take a penalty, son, at the Millennium Stadium in front of 60,000 people and you've got to score. We need your goal. But as I say, he's just strolled up there and keep your cool, son. Just keep your cool. Just and strike through it. Oh, I did it, Jones. Make your decision and do it. The Welsh Premiership a year ago. Fires home. The penalty as confident as you like. Swansea City are still in there. It's 3 all. Great strike, Rob. For a young lad, like I say, being asked, you know, had to score. Had to score, and he did. Welcome to the Longman's Football World Podcast. Episode number four with Gary Monk. Always a pleasure catching up with an old friend, an old teammate, an old captain, current championship manager with Middlesbrough. Certainly picked up recently three wins out of three. Um, some would say that this current run of form ties in quite nicely with my visit up there to see him. Um, you know, I don't want his confidence to to plummet, but those are the facts. So read into it what you will. Some words of wisdom from, from his old friend. Obviously seem to be working. 
But uh, good catching up with him. Obviously, this one's a little bit different because he's in a high-profile job. Uh, as, a, as a manager these days, you do have to watch what you say. Uh, but but I hope that I caught him at a good time, made him feel relaxed, made sure that the, the, the conversation was, was just nice and smooth, really, and picking his brains on the old stories, as is, uh, as is the norm. And also a couple of things, you know, how things are going for him now. Life as a manager, uh, the pressures of being a manager. Um, it was it was a good sit down, a really enjoyable one. Hopefully, you guys enjoy it too. This is episode four with Gary Monk. He likes to tell you if anyone will listen about his seven caps, his chocolate knees, his distinct lack of pace. Now it's a long shot. football world I've heard a lot about it it's going global yeah it is going global it's going well I'm just about to bring that down right down keep it regional got a couple of good guests and uh, unfortunately obviously it's gone lower the time desperate times <laughs> and here you are mate I was uh, I was just wondering coming up doing a few little notes not not research on you and I was just thinking which Gary am I going to be speaking to the real Gary, or the Gary that I see on Sky Sports News these days. Yeah. I'm sure that with the glass of wine that we have in front of us, maybe I'll, I'll loosen up and... Your favourite wine, yeah? Favourite wine? What have you poured me here? I've poured you a little Chateau Nerd de Pape. Oh. Very posh word, very good pronunciation. Yeah. But yeah, I hope you like it. It's my favourite. I remember you telling me about this a couple of years ago. Yeah. And I thought, oh... By the name, Chateau Neuf de Pap, that this was something <laughs> exotic. You know, you could only find it, I don't know, in, in a vineyard somewhere deep in southern France. But it's in every Tesco. Well, the berry came from that. Right. A very, probably unique place. But yeah, it's in every good wholesale, wholesale store. So um, no, I hope you like it, mate. It's a good wine. The big question is, we're now, what, end of October, probably yeah. into November... Uh, when this goes out, those little Irish <laughs> to play for you, right? I'm still, <laughs> I'm still hurting. 
from, yeah. from Ireland knocking Wales out. Hopefully when that keeper with the long arms, Randolph, stretch Armstrong arms, and that right back, Christie, did you run them? Because, come on, your daughter speaks Welsh from living in Swansea. Surely, surely you thought, you little <laughs> you're having it. There was just mass celebration in the Middlesbrough changing room. And, um, yeah, it's an interesting one, isn't it? The two of them come back. And I sp- actually spoke to them about the game, asked them how they felt. And I think, if we're honest, there's a little bit of, I think, from the first game, um, because it's really close nations, aren't isn't it? You know, it's, it's um, yeah, the feeling they had going into the game, speaking to them about it, like I said, asked them about the build-up and how they felt in the camp and stuff like that. I think they felt a little bit, there was a little bit of that, even though it was unintentional, that little bit of Seamus Coleman type of situation where they felt, you know, they wanted to kind of do it for him sort of thing. There was that feeling in the camp. And Surely not the right back, because he thinks, I don't want to do it for Coleman, because <laughs> if we get to the World Cup, no, we're at the bench. But the same as like Wales, isn't it? I think the home nation is what they're good at. Is um, you know that well you've got it with Wales that together stronger theme that team sort of club mentality you know where everyone's in together I think Ireland have the same sort of spirit speaking to those boys and oh no they don't probably do it as publicly as what Wales do I think they still have that that club mentality with the players there judging on what what the, the two the two of them said and um, I think it was a clash of the two those type of mentalities wasn't it and then. Obviously, game plan wise, the game wise, game wise itself, I thought Ireland played it pretty much spot on, and um, yeah, they got for me they got the deserved result, and it probably it probably suited them that the game was away. Yeah, um, and they spoke about. I think they talked about again publicly where Wales had talked about turning. I think the anthem off and the fans singing and that type of atmosphere they were going to go into. I think it was like that can go one or two ways, can't it? You know as well as me. I think it's either that can put the fear factor into another team or that can kind of galvanise them and I think because they knew what was coming I think it kind of galvanised them judging what the two lads said so um, but still it's a game to be played isn't there and I think yeah overall I think Ireland probably played the the perfect game plan and um, yeah they were delighted and fair play to them you know it's good for us as a club having them guys with a chance of a World Cup so they know it's a big season for them and, and that can only help us in the for Middlesbrough as a club. So their value goes up and you can sell them on. <laughs> yeah. But then, funny enough, when you saw the playoff draw with Denmark, obviously we've got a Danish international as well, Martin Braithwaite, so the banter in the changing room has just gone up a notch again because those two, you know, they've got each other in the playoffs as well. So got two Irish lads and one Danish lad in the squad. So I'm sure when that game comes around, it's going to be, yeah, that's going to be interesting to see the dynamic in the change room then. What What is it like for you, like as a, as a manager now, these good level championship, uh, touched on prem, Premier League and stuff. Like I know you, you hear stories, players go away international, and you're left with a skeleton squad or as such. I, I don't know mm. what it, what it, what is it like in Middlesbrough. Do you like them going away? I, I know it's for them to freshen their minds and stuff. I got see something different. But as as their manager, from a selfish point of view, you want to keep them, don't you? Yeah, of course. You know, ideally. But I think um, that's something I learned in management in terms of. I've changed the international break around. Um, so we've got five internationals in the squad. And, um, and of course, the most difficult bit is the international breaks in the championship because there's so many games. It's very hard to train when the games are coming thick and fast to actually get good time to develop the team. So we use the international breaks to real effect, to really try and develop the team. And, and of course, then if you haven't got all your players and important players as well to do that, it makes it difficult. So... 
what we've done um, is change the international break up around. So we've we've given them the early time off straight away after the last game, and then that gives us a longer period with pretty much the whole squad that are left to train together. And um, I think before, and what most teams have done before is they come back in straight away, and then that weekend that's free is generally that's been the weekend that's been off. But we've flipped it around where we're in over that weekend. So generally, the players that have played in the game before have recovered. They're ready to train. So the whole squad trains together. So albeit you miss those, you're still getting good work into the whole squad and there's important work for them. So we've kind of negated that through, the, you know, through doing that. And then obviously when the international boys come back in, we just try and get them up to speed with the work that we've been doing, which is, again, yeah, it's difficult. But it's more just sitting with them, explaining what we've done. And it's probably more of a visual than actually physically. So no, but... I think it's just the way it is. You have to just get on with it and find a way to... And that's the way that I find best to to try and get it all across. The culture's a little bit different now. Like, if you would have given players when we played, I know coming through League One and stuff, there's only a couple of top-notch internationals in the Swansea squad, you know? Who were they? they? Well, I mean, Sam Ricketts was an international, but I wouldn't put him in the top-class bracket. Um, I can only remember Ashley Williams, really. Yeah, he was a bit later. Um, is he top class? I'm not sure. There was one guy, oh, just a, a thing of beauty on and off the field. Well, yeah, judging when me and Tatey... Matty Collins. Yeah, Matty, Matty Collins. But judging when me and Tatey retired from international recognition... Um, I remember up, that, yeah. ...for England. You officially came yeah, out. Yeah, we officially you? came out and said that we weren't available to play for England. Just wanted to concentrate on club football. Really, it was only... Can only really think of Ashley Williams that was left in the squad that of, of any stature, should mm. we say? I can't really even think of any more international. Joey Allen, obviously. Mm. Ben Davis, obviously. Yeah, yeah. Who you know, top caliber. The rest were just. Yeah, I don't remember anyone else being an international player really. Nobody of, of any recognition no. whatsoever. Uh, I think you've been a bit disrespectful. Um, what? I've got I've got seven caps. Um, You've got seven caps. Seven more than you. Seven. Yeah, but that's for Wales. And is it because you retired as well? <laughs> it's because I retired. Because mm. when you made that climb to the Premier League, you mm. feel maybe you and Tate had a, had a word with each other and said, yeah. maybe we've made a mistake here. Well, I think the way we gauged it rising through the leagues was obviously as Swansea we were getting recognition and, and getting mentioned. We, I think me and Tate sat down and we said, look, we can either go and get 100 caps for Wales or we can hold out for one cap for England. And Unfortunately, the one cap didn't come, but we thought we were willing to take that risk. Mm. But um, it never came. And as it got a little bit older, we just decided to retire from international <laughs> recognition. We used to have a good time, though, didn't we? Like, yeah. uh, the, the usual, everyone has a bit of, bit of a laugh in that, England-Wales. But we like training. But it was on everything, wasn't it? It wasn't just football, it was... Anything. Any sport. Any sport England were involved with, you Welsh boys were on on us English lads and anything that Wales were involved with and probably the best story is when um, do you remember when um, England got to the World Cup rugby final in South Africa so not the one where they won it but when they lost in the final to South Africa and all the English boys went out and brought a England rugby top we wore it under the training kit and um, we did we always used to do a rondos in the morning didn't we and um, and we had decided the English lads that when you go in the middle obviously you have to it was two or three of you in the middle. We decided that we stand stand next to each other and we make sure that we go in the middle. Every time we went in, we took the top off and there was that England shirt and you Welsh boy. I think what I remember from that is Owen Tudor Jones, when I took my top off, 
picking up a clump of mud, right? And in real disgust and genuine disgust at me, just started throwing mud. Mm. Not probably not at me, but at the shirt. And I found that hugely disrespectful. Did you? And the fact that all the Ospreys rugby club were there as well, training on that day, just made it a little bit more difficult for the English boys. But And no one knew. Being true to myself, I went through with it. And no one knew. The tag was probably still on the shirt, ready to take back. And then as soon as that first splatter of mud went on... Yeah, devastation. It was over. Yeah, and then I had to pay a good... I think it was about 50, 60 quid for that shirt. Who else was there? It was me, Darren Way. Um, Who else was there? I think like Robbo got involved. Brits got involved. Um, What a a turncoat he is. I know. Seen him in his Wales top recently. I think obviously Ashley Williams would have got involved being English, but... uh, (laughs) he decided that he might go against it and ruin his chances yeah, yeah. and same with Ricketts do you, <laughs> do you do you miss playing like I know it's a it's a it's an obvious question yeah and I'm guessing that you miss the dressing room but it is different for you now in an office and you're almost not allowed in that dressing room yeah and it's you're just not a part of it and you'll never get that back yeah I don't mean to break your heart You'll never get that back, Harry. It's over. <laughs> but you, you used to enjoy it more than most, probably, didn't you? Yeah. It's where the heartbeat of everything, isn't it? Changing room. It's where the, your best memories come from. I think, answering your question, I probably have not had time to think about it because literally I went straight from playing literally the next day into management. And um, it's been so 100 miles an hour and hectic and so many things going on I haven't really had time to even when I got sacked from Swansea and had that five or six months I think that was probably the only time especially in that first couple of months I'd ever not walked into a training room mm. or into a football environment in 21 years or 22 years something like that it was and that was hard but that wasn't so, the fact of not being playing football that was the fact of not walking into a, a football club and being out of work first time in 20 odd years that was really hard but I think the times I miss football is when sometimes I'm stood on the side sidelines and there's a really good game going on in front of you and um, you can just smell and taste that atmosphere. You're right, literally a yard away from the, the pitch. You can feel it and, and that's when you have maybe that few seconds where you think to yourself, I'll give anything to be playing there today yeah. in this situation. Be, that's where you'd thrive on it. and um, Yeah, that's probably the closest I get to thinking about playing again or wishing I was playing again, but... Then you quickly switch back into management mode and trying to help the the team win the game. It's weird because we're we're probably very different. Like I I got into it late, injuries, mm. and stopped early. Really, yeah, that never really stopped. What injuries? It was just there, wasn't it? Yeah, but yeah, why? I think it was just the unprofessionalism of yourself. Like, <laughs> do, you, do you remember that one night out that we had? We did the, something called the Red Bull Challenge. Oh, my God. I'm not even going to... The, the in, injured night out. Injured night out. So there was you, me. But there was a lot of uninjured players there as well, <laughs> which made it strange. <laughs> you just seemed to have an injury that week on their head. There was yeah. a night out. There was, I think there was about... That week, mysteriously, when we mentioned at the start there was an injury night out, um, everyone had heard about that Red Bull Challenge. Mysteriously, there was about another six injuries thrown in that week. I think the genuine injuries, there was you, me, Dazway. That's probably the only three... I we were the think. three major... Yeah, injuries long termers, and, and then, then you had tra- trans, I think trans, Brits and Robbo. Yeah, there was a few a couple others. more. Maybe Stevie Watt. Stevie Watt was there, and then the Red Bull Challenge. Tom you, Butler. 
But <laughs> think of the change. Yeah. But you used to love it, didn't you? Yeah, loved it. And as much as the football's the memories, those are memories as well. That's mm. the bond that we all have. You know, that's why we sit here today as friends still, and we're still in contact with all of those people. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, you don't speak every day and you don't see each other every day, but literally when you do meet up again or you speak on the phone, it's like as if you were with each other for right back then, isn't it? And that's the bits that you remember most. And that's why, as much as the football, and we love it, I think those are the things that you take with you for the rest of your life, don't you? You remember those days. Yeah, yeah. You know, like we spoke of this, that, you know, a little joke, how you have to behave now in yeah. the media. So you have a process how you go into interviews, um, you realise you're speaking to more than just the press that are in that room. It's it's a nationwide thing. It's it's going out. Your players will see it. When did you know you had to change from being that guy that was the caretaker where your first couple of interviews or press conferences, a little mm. bit jokey because you're still Gary, the captain, and mm. you're trying to please everyone and maybe give them a sound bite from a comedy point of view. Mm. When did you feel you had to change with that as at Swansea? Yeah, definitely. Um, I think I kind of had the know-how before literally being captain when you did interviews. I think you had to kind of represent the group. But obviously not to the extent you have to do as a manager. So um, I think as a manager, you're very conscious of what you're saying purely on the basis of, you know, your job's to protect the club and protect the group and... Um, and represent the club and the players and yourself, your staff, what you feel is the right way, the right image, you know, and you're very conscious of that. And I'm always myself, you know, I'm not trying to be someone else. I always do the interviews as myself. And I'm very honest. I like to think in my interviews. and But of course, articulating yourself properly and sending off the right image of what you want and who you really are and what you think about. And I, yeah, consciously try and improve those things. So when I watch that, I remember taking over and of course I was still a player at the time where there was 13 games when I first got the job. I wasn't trying to be a manager. You know, I didn't realise or at the time I didn't even think about what the future would be for me. I just thought at the time the clubs asked me to take the team and take the trainings and make the selections and I, even at that point I wasn't trying to be a manager. I was trying to be the club captain and bring everyone together and I think once I got through that period and then the, the chairman Hugh Jenkins offered me the job permanently. I think I sat down that summer and that's when I thought about everything, obviously the football side of it, planning that, and then obviously the other side of it with the media commitments. Looked back at the interviews that I'd done and studied a bit on on what I wanted to do and um, yeah, realised that yeah, I couldn't be so, yeah, I wouldn't say laddish, but yeah, the, probably the vocabulary that I was using was a bit laddish maybe. And but how, how do you feel you were in a situation where Roberto came back and... You know, as players, it's, it's normal. As players, you're going to say, oh, he's changed. Why is he changing so much? Where's the old Roberto gone that we yeah. used to have a good time, we'd go for coffees, whatever. Um, but then that, that had to be you. You you quickly realised, mm. oh, shit, yeah, this is something yeah. that has to be done. You can't be mates, can you? And, and It's 100%. And that's why Swansea will always be the hardest job I ever get, or ever had, sorry. And um, Because I spent a lot of, there's been a lot of those guys that are in the changing room in terms of I socialise with, very good friends with, friends up until this day, and will be for the rest of my life. And um, and it's not that you're trying to change, but you realise that there's also players in that changing room, players that you recruit, new players coming in that 
you don't want to send the message to them that you're one of the lads. You know, you're the ma you're their manager. Their their future is in your hands. You decide whether they play. You decide whether they have a future at the club, and that's dictated by you. So, if you're just one of the lads and you're that that joker or that personality that I was in the change room, for me, it's not going to work. And um, it's difficult because they would have seen me changing. They probably would have thought those thoughts that you had. I'm fully aware of that, but I knew in myself I had to. I had to change to a certain respect. Well, I was still myself where, you know what I mean? I'd still bring my personality, but I think the job is, the job you do have to change. You have to set boundaries and there's certain things that you probably could go or lines you could go across when your teammates where you can't go across as a manager manager to a player or a player to a manager. And I, know, I knew that you had to set those boundaries and I knew that that had to be done. And if there was consequences of that, then so be it. But I think realising that very quickly and understanding that is, is a key part of the job. And obviously that's helped me going forward. You know, being in different change rooms like at Leeds now at Middlesbrough, where I don't know those players. We haven't had that relationship from before. Um, even players that I've bought on loan from Swansea to me, hit, you know, at Leeds and now at Middlesbrough. Um, I think um, they understand and the rest of the change room understand that you're in a, you know, you're a manager now, you're not a player. And, I understood that very clearly. So these are the sacrifices you have to make, to be honest with you. Do you think, looking back, obviously you're going to back yourself uh, ability-wise in that, that Swansea got rid of you too early? Obviously you, you feel you could have come through that rut. I, I was commentating on games and going to games quite regularly. Um, you're obviously going to feel that it was the wrong decision. You were the right man mm -hmm. to, to move it forward. But is there a part of you that actually is glad because it's probably a blessing for you that you've got that difficult job, that difficult first job that maybe people thought was an easy job because mm. it was a club you knew. Mm. Um, but then you could go away then and, and hopefully flourish at mm. different clubs. No, no you're right. I, I said it all along. I said, I'll never find a harder job or have a harder job than ever I did at Swansea. I think everyone thought that it'd be easier for me because I knew everyone, I knew everyone at the club. I knew it inside out. But for me, it was for the reasons that we just spoke about where I had such an emotional attachment to everyone at that club that the, the whole responsibility was tenfold. And like we talked, I just mentioned it, the future of a lot of people at that club was now in my hands. And um, so the difficulty of that, whilst changing, whilst new to the job, whilst inexperienced, whilst learning on the job, all those contribution, con contributing factors weighed heavy. And um, every single decision, little decisions, you know, that aren't so, I realise now aren't so important, were big, big decisions for me emotionally. and. Um, so that's what made it incredibly difficult but then finding your way through that and obviously what happened yeah of course you know the first time I faced a difficult period we weren't playing well but you know the fact that we hadn't changed anything and in football you realise that you know, difficult periods will come <clears throat> I think the fact that it was my first difficult period and didn't feel the support really around me was disappointing considering my attachment to the club but you know looking at it there's nothing better about it I was and still to this day I'm massively grateful for the opportunity and you know what an opportunity it is it's once in a lifetime opportunity and um but i think the biggest factor of it is, is it was a brilliant learning curve for me going through that experience of doing well you know relatively no experience to and then the difficult periods getting sacked having to go through that experience learn about yourself and and really try and digest all of that i think as an experience that set me up for how I went into Leeds and now how I'm going into Middlesbrough. So yeah, you're right. And to a certain extent, it's a blessing and yeah, using that experience to my advantage and 
trying just to benefit not, me. Just not at the time. Just not at the time, but obviously. What would you have done different? If, like, off the top of your head, a couple of things, is there anything? Yeah, I think I probably. There's a number of things. It's very difficult because we hadn't changed a lot of the things and things that were very successful in the season before. But I think maybe a little bit, and I spoke to you before we, we started talking, was, you know, I think I was the first manager really for many years there where I changed the system and tried to bring a different system. I just felt that the way that we had played in, in the past and the future of football and what, looking at what other teams were doing and the way football was going, um, I felt that we, we were becoming a little bit predictable and, and obviously then changing system um, raised a few eyebrows, a little bit of talk about changing the way our style, which I wasn't trying to do. I was just trying to bring a different system where we weren't predictable that I thought other teams were figuring us out a little bit more was to give them something to think about again. And it proved very successful in that first season. We finished eighth and had a fantastic season. And um, I think probably what I regret doing was, and we talked about it, maybe being young and inexperienced at that time was listening to people around me and, and certain people that were trying to say that we were going away from what we got us to the Premier League. Um, I probably felt obliged to go back to the same system that we'd used over the years and and um, and trust in that again. And and I think if I had my time again, I would have stuck to what I was doing, was changing the philosophy. and Not the philosophy, but the the, the formation, the, the, the setup, because I felt that was how football was going, that was how teams were adapting in the Premier League, it was moving forward and I should have probably stuck with that. If you if you had a choice, would you rather be in a situation where you're picking teams, ready to go out on a Saturday and organising that or organising Christmas parties, party buses, cool. uh, secret Santas? That is a tough one. It's not a tough one, it's a no-brainer. It's, yeah, I, I'm going to give it the Christmas parties <laughs> and the Secret Santas and we had some good Secret oh, Santas. Didn't absolute we? amazing, amazing Christmas parties. I think that was in a time as well where there wasn't social media and yeah. there wasn't all those things, so you could actually go out and enjoy your night. And and we always did. I think the type of squads that we had and the groups that we had at that time, they were just brilliant squads to be involved in, weren't they? And, and yeah. we went out for each other, didn't we, to have a laugh and a joke, and and it was brilliant. You know, and then obviously the Secret Santa as well. There was no one that loved Secret Santa more than you and the effort that we used to go to. Well, I think one year, it was you and Roberto. So maybe it was my first year at the club. So I was just a young, naive little pup or a long pup. Yeah. You and Roberto used to go out together, I think, didn't you? You know, captain, vice-captain. Yeah. Even though you were desperate for his armband. <laughs> Horrible guy. And uh, get the Secret Santa sorted. Everyone, everyone drew a name out of a hat and everyone had to get that person on but you liked to go out for extras didn't you of course and when Roberto left I took over that mantle but nobody really knew did they mm -hmm. so the extras that people were opening that were ruthless you'd be getting them like ah monks you're out of order monk you've gone too far and I'd be in the corner nobody yeah. expecting anything I got blamed for everything that was real personal I don't know what what can you think of top of your head I remember I think it's been done after as well we got Matty Collins the dartboard Oof. with Roberto's face on the middle, on the bullseye, yeah. Yeah? yeah, with the dart through it because he wasn't playing and he was getting fed st stories about his development. And he's got to buy this time and he was hating it. Yeah. Um, what else was there? We got a couple of pinatas that yeah. were made out of uh, like a crocodile pinata for Roberto's shoes, and then gave them to Roberto the gaffer. 
There's your crocodile shoes yeah. to replace them. He used to brown wear brown ones. shoes all the time, and we used to think they were very poor. But he used to think that was. Remember, every time he wore something really bad, in yeah, he would always say it'd be out in in England in two years' time, as if he was ahead of the time. But it was the most worst gear you've ever seen in your life. So yeah, we used to try and get get him in, didn't we? Yeah. With, with those things, I'm trying to think, Leon Leon would always get something to do with with being small, you know, like little baby outfits, baby grows. Dummies, milk milk bottles. Um, you used to always get things like it was something to do. With obviously, being very long. I remember my my mate, and I mean tall by that. <laughs> if I'm honest, my mate Matthew or Taff, who I lived with when I first moved down to um, to Swansea, he's still got a toilet roll holder. What was my and it had you. And I have, to give, I have to give Taff credit. He actually got me onto podcasts. That's why we're here today. Oh, okay. Well done, Taff. Well done, Taff. And uh, he's still got the toilet roll holder. That is just like, it must be four foot long. <laughs> it probably holds a good 16 pack of Andrex. <laughs> and all you did was keep it dead long, dead skinny, and then cut out a little picture of my face at the top. Arms. In the middle. And your legs at the bottom. And legs at the bottom. Because, yeah, you did have to take a bit of stick for that. I remember one one year, I can't remember if you were still at the club, but obviously Secret Santa was a tradition, wasn't it? And there was a young player called James Bergen. And um some one of the lads <laughs> one of the lads had brought three pasties, but wrapped them up separately. <laughs> and when he had to go up there and obviously you had to open them up in front of all the lads, didn't and you? And explain what it was. And explain what it is and why they would buy you that. And I think James Bergen went up there and um Opened the first pasty, and um, it had James Perkin as a pasty <laughs> written on it. So obviously he was a bit, obviously he took it really badly. Yeah. And then um, obviously I think because he wasn't the brightest, does he? Yeah. And I think Which it made the, him a pasty. And I think at the time, the you normally you opened all your pre, all your presents, secret hands at the same time. But obviously they got a bit muddled up. So then I think about two or three players later, he got called up again. Oh James, there's another one for you. And he opened up. It was another pasty. And what does it say, James? James Bergen is a complete pasty. Sat back down, really angry about it. And then right at the end, someone found another present. James Bergen. Opened up again. Three pasties. James Bergen is an absolute pasty again. Like, And he really took that badly. And, and I think that really ended his career. Yeah. Before he even started. Before he even started. Here's another one. Darren Way. The Czech. Oh, my God. Daz, Daz Way. Uh, Darren Way was allowed to sign from Yeovil. Uh, £150,000 was the yeah. fee and he had a lot of injuries had a tough time at Swansea so never really played did he? Didn't, hardly played um, you so, know. so he was robbing money off the club basically well hey they all words not mine yeah well that's what we so, so we ended up getting him one of those giant Bouncing. charity funny checks. children in need type checks <laughs> and wrote grand to Darren Way any fucking chance signed Kenny Jacket signed by Kenny Jacket <laughs> And he wasn't one that he oh, liked he was, to dish yeah. out, didn't he? We, yeah. Daz didn't like it too much coming back his way. And then Watty, Stephen Watt, who um, I think notoriously had bad breath. And um, is, I there, think he got, is there a clinical I think he term got, for I that? think, yeah. What's, what's the word in for it? Is that halitosis or something? Something like that. A shit breath. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Watty. And um, I think he got 67 tubes of toothpaste. And, um, and remember those... Those dust masks that you put over when you're when you're working with a lot of fumes or whatever it is, and I think Rory Fallon and 
Darren Ware fell off the chair in laughter <laughs> when he opened it up. You could take it, though, couldn't you? Yeah, it was yeah, yeah, great banner. What about your What about your love of Christmas parties? Because I tell people I've spoke previously with uh, Trans Leon about how my love of Christmas parties came from Swansea, came from yourself, fancy dress, how it's changed now. Not, people don't like doing it, but no, we were. And again, I'm repeating myself. I have spoke to Trans about it. How. These days especially, lads like to go to big cities, don't they? They like to go to London, Manchester, yeah. Newcastle for a night out, look good. And we were just... Ha- so how happy were we in Swansea? Revolution, well, party well, bus. Well, I think we realised as players that it was a very much a community club. So we like to keep it in the community. And um, I just felt that my responsibility, along with others that chipped in, obviously our device, but I just felt that as captain or vice-captain at times with, with Roberto, that it was important that we got that right because that could make or break a season. Well, And at that time, and in a serious note, at that time, those type of nights, the way they were, were seriously strong in terms of the bond that we all had, wasn't they, like, in terms of enhancing it? And I think... The first half of the season, obviously you concentrate on your games, but what got us through the first half of the season was thinking about the Christmas party, planning yeah. for the Christmas party, wasn't it? Yeah. And knowing that you had to have like a good p- period up to it to make it good... And then coming out of it, that togetherness to go into that next finish of the season. But not really had anything to do with that. It was just a night out. And, um, and they were amazing ones, weren't they? Fancy dress. Mm. I think there was a real good camaraderie. Now, I don't think you couldn't do it nowadays. You couldn't do what we what we did. And it'd be social media again would dictate that. And, you know, people would say it's unprofessional and, and all those things. But I think at that time, it was, it was what it was. And you embraced it, didn't you? And I think new lads that come to the club and... Even some of the foreign boys that come to the club totally embraced it and loved it, and and um, yeah, they were really yeah amazing times. I think that as well. Again, it's probably football's probably now the most professional it's ever been. Yeah, and I think again, social media plays a big part in terms of players relaxing and and if it's a night out and stuff like that, very conscious. You have to be very conscious of your surroundings and what you do, and you do because I think again, you also you know, footballers are put on a pedestal and they do have a responsibility to act and conduct themselves in the right way. But I've said it all along, everyone's a human being. You know, everyone, you know, there are times where players do need to let off steam. And if it is a night out or whatever it is, then there's nothing wrong with that as long as it's the right times. But I think now it's the most professional the players have ever been. There's not that culture anymore, I don't think. And some of it's for the worse. You know, because I do think that those things were really strong in forming those bonds, so they probably don't have that anymore. But I think it's really just the sense of responsibility that players have now, and the social media side of it, it makes it very difficult for those days. But they won't, they won't ever come back. So, do you have to speak to the players, or is it that general? I've had it, token gesture. Someone comes in, mm. careful on social media. If you say something mm. disparaging about the club, you get a fine or something. Mm. Is it just that, or? Well, I think they realise. You know, I just think. <clears throat> My my way of, of dealing with the players is treat them as adults, you know, until they show you anything different. And of course, you speak to them about the right times to do things and the responsibility that they have, because at the end of the day, we're paid, and those players are paid to perform and perform at their highest level for the football club, and they pay very well for it. But um, I think the other side of it, the camaraderie, the social side of it, is vitally important as well to create that that bond and that strength, that spirit amongst the squad and. And you encourage it in a way where you, you treat them as adults, you know, and, and um, as long as they do it at the right time and there's nothing stupid that comes from it, there's nothing, 
you know, over the top that comes from it, then that's fine. I, I think that's fine. But I think, again, you know, players generally more often than not are responsible lads, you know, and they're adults at the end of the day and you have to treat them with that respect and, and that's what I do in my management. You've loosened up though, like from seeing you when you were managing Swansea, I remember one game, came down to the office after Sunderland at home, I think it was a 1-1 draw and then I think we'd planned to have something to eat that night and I came back to yours after the game and match of the day was on, you were stressed out your nut because of the football, because it was all new to you. And it's probably more to do with my company. But you fell asleep on the sofa, mate. <laughs> Did I? Yeah. Oh I think you were, you were so exhausted. It was yeah. it was evident in your face. You, you had a little skeletal face. <laughs> yeah. You, you looked ill. I was worried about you. I had to, I had to check your pulse while you were napping. <laughs> but you've, you seem to have loosened up since that you've obviously learned from experiences it mm. gets easier with experience as you go on there yeah definitely and, um, and as I think we said it earlier I think you know at Swansea at that time I said yeah every single decision even no matter how small it was weighed heavy mm. and I think it's then realising what's the most important prioritising what's the most important thing and or the most important things and yes stress about them or concentrate on them and put forth into them and the other one decisions which are still important decisions but realise that emotionally wise they're not as important they don't need to have as much feel about it and I think it's making sure that you understand what's most important that's where the emotion goes and then what's not important yes it's important to make the decision but it's not as important to put the emotion into it and I think that helps you then to relax a little bit more I don't think I ever you can't fully ever relax in this this job that I do just the sense of responsibility I think again the one thing I noticed a lot when I first took the manager's job and got into management was when you're a player and the game's over and you go out into the community you could be in wherever Tesco's or you could be filling your car with petrol and, and a fan comes up to you or someone from that city comes up to you and they want to talk to you about the game um, whether you've had a good game or a bad game or whatever it is I think it's there's a sense as a player yeah, you can have had a bad game and you feel disappointed about it and you feel a little bit, don't really want to talk about it and there is, but I don't feel that, the, that the, those fans or those people really look at you as responsible, whereas management, I've definitely noticed a lot, they look at you differently. You can be rude or obnoxious to a fan who might be a little bit, um, you know, a bit rude back to you Yeah. as manager. you gotta you got to treat with a straight bat. Totally, and, and the... the it's just a sense of responsibility. It's hard to explain, but the feeling of responsibility that they're looking at you as in that result that weekend and everything that's going on is your responsibility, which it is, which it is overall, you know, and that feeling is what is, it's hard to explain, is, is something I noticed straight away when you walk around the city you're in or you walk around that community, how they look at you and that, it's just that feeling of responsibility, is, it weighs and it's tenfold on what a player would feel. And obviously, I haven't been a player, now a manager, knowing that. Um, that's something I've definitely noticed. And so that, I think, again, then leans on to how you look at the job and how well you want to do it, because you know what it means. You know the responsibility you have on your shoulders, and that can weigh heavy. But I think it's trying to get a balance of, you know, understanding that and making sure that you just stay focused on what you need to do and to give yourself the best opportunity to, to do a good job. Do you think it's crazy that... You go into work as a manager and you have an ideal 
a plan in your mind. Same, same as a player. So, for example, when I played, you signed for Swansea and something tells you you're going to play for that club for X amount of years and all is going to be well. That's the football world. And then all of a sudden you find yourself on loan in your mid-20s. You know, it's, that's not the picture you had. That's not the plan you had as a professional footballer that you're in a hotel in Yeovil for three months. You're in Swindon for two months and stuck in a hotel. Same as a manager. You, you go into it, I guess planning for the future, long-term future, but the reality is it's not going to happen, you know, which, which makes it hard to settle at a club. It's, it is a business these days, player and, and manager, mm. um, but it's probably hard to really get into the nitty-gritty of getting to know a community, or, or do you find that easy to do? I think, um, yeah, you're totally right, but I think you don't think of that when you go into a club. I don't think about the consequences of what might be coming. You know, I think I just think about, you know, number one is to get what you need immediately set up right and done, um, whether that's squad um, recruitment, whether that's the environment that you're working in, the, the standards that you're going to set, the plan that you have for the players to play and, and training, training that to get it to a level where you need it as, as soon as possible, as quick as possible. And I think you just stay focused on, on that. And in terms of the longevity side of it, I think, of course, you go in there in the back of your mind with... Um, working with the club and depends what club you go to but with that mind of what you can change at the club in the future you know as a whole club and um, but of course the priority and you know in management is the football and the results straight away and that's what you need to try and focus on most and, and I think even then you can get a period of, of that sustained is then you can start to think about other areas of the club and obviously come to Middlesbrough and having those, those discussions with, with Steve Gibson you know, very much a club man thinks about the whole club, had good discussions about the whole club. And we talked about how he wants to change the image of the club and, and go in a, in a different route in terms of the football and the club itself to make the improvements. That's really something that, you know, really appealed to me. And But I know that my first focus is, is the football in terms of the first team, the results, how that team's playing and to get that right and to get it to a level of consistency, you know, where that then allows you the time to help develop the rest of the club. And, and that's the ambition. But of course, you're very mindful of not losing focus on the here and now and what's needed right now. And there's a golf course next to the training ground. And there's a golf course, which well. sometimes I stand on that training. Oh my God, that's a fine. To have a mobile phone on in, in, a, in a very important po- podcast. Mm. I apologise, that was actually me. That's but actually bad. It's my podcast, I'll do what I want. <laughs> but... um. Yeah, going back to the golf course, yeah, sometimes stand on the training ground, look across some of the people teeing off on the first tee and very envious. And worried about your players if someone's shanking. Yeah, and worried if one hits a bow one off the tee, but it's a fantastic setup. The club, training ground's amazing and facilities and yeah, I don't play golf as much as I used to as a player, don't get the time now. So yeah, that envious look across is sometimes there, yeah, for sure. Do you know, like as a, as a modern modern day manager, I know you'll have your little spiel that you're looking at all players from all ages. Um, I saw recently that German clubs are looking at English players, like young 17, 18 year old players, who are obviously so, so talented, but they're never going to get a chance. Premier League, probably Championship as well. Are they, are they on your radar? When do, they bec- when do they come onto your radar? Or is it always, right, I've got two players for a position. If there's an injury, then you look for someone on loan unless that youth team player is an absolute standout? Or are you, are you someone who tries to really look deeper in a club and think if there's an opportunity, 
that you can provide it? I'm definitely the latter. Um, I've done that at all the clubs and especially then going into Leeds and now at Middlesbrough, I've already done it where I think it's vitally important and it's something that's missing now because like you said, you know, football's looked at as a business, clubs look at it as a business and you have to be mindful of that and it's your responsibility to understand that. But I grew up in a, in a time where in football where there was a pathway to the first team, the clubs that I was, there was a pathway from a youth player or an academy player as it is now to the first team. And um, I think that's vitally important at a club because what's the point of having a youth set up or an academy if you're never ever going to use it? There's no point. It's a waste. And some clubs have, like Brentford, I know it's different in London because yeah. they're competing with such huge clubs, yeah. but it actually makes sense just to not have an academy. It does. And if that's the way you, you're going to do it, it's 100%. So that's a, from their perspective, that's a clever decision. Mm. But Mid- Middlesbrough and Leeds have an academy. Um, they have a big history in the academy, you know, of players coming through and going into an, an international football, making massive careers. So it's a tra- tra- tradition and something they hold dear at, at Leeds and, and Middlesbrough, where I've been. And um, but the key to that is is making sure that the pathway is there and it's clear and it's honest. And I've already shown that. And the first thing I've done going into both clubs was take the advice of the academy staff that are there, understand the players that are in that youth system as well, as well as recruiting first team players and changing that dynamic anyway as you're doing it, but making sure that having a look at the academy, looking at those players, taking them straight away with me to up into the first team trainings, away on pre-season camps, to have a really good look at them and see if there is anyone in there that has the potential to, to become a first team player and make them see it clearly that there's, there's going to be involvement at Leeds and at Middlesbrough. Youth team players are involved in all my trainings, you know, whether that be on a, on a daily basis in the first team, preparation-wise. So they're always getting a feel that they're coming up into the first team environment. And for me, that's a great learning curve, but it also sees the pathway. And then using those players, when you feel it's right, when they've earned it, they've already made the first team debuts, you know, under me and at Leeds and now at Middlesbrough. And I think that, sense of achievement for the academy as well but I only do it if they deserve it yeah. and I only do it if, if they're good enough and I think to give that pathway I think is the best thing for a young player it's the best feeling and it's the best feeling for you as a manager as well as the first team players the more experienced ones the more regulars seasoned pros to give a debut to a young player who deserves it and has earned it is a great feeling do you know what I mean and they're the ones that you want to send on their pathway and yeah. on their path in their career and have that experience and and help them on even if it's that early part of their career to try and establish themselves and give them a career. But so I am very big on it. I love working with young players. Uh, again, modern manager, um, championship football, you're in work. How do you deal with, I, I would assume, you, you can correct me, when you're in a job, everyone wants to be your mate. Yeah, so you, your phone's probably ringing for you to do this, do that, um, come and see this person or, or whatever it may be. You get invited to... to golf tournament stuff like that and then when you're out of work less people want you less people want a, a little bite of you is that something you you're familiar with or do you find oh it? you're forgotten in an instant mate yeah nah um are you, are you you're a streetwise guy are you clued up to that do you sometimes come across people and think yeah i i know what you're about here i think like probably one of my biggest strengths in my whole life has always been i'm a very good judge of character Instead of getting sucked into... Yeah. I know who, who's true and who's not, you know, and the people that are true are still in my life. You know, unfortunately, you're still in my life, so that's 
probably one that got away yeah. with it. Well, it, there's pros and cons in that. You know, I've come here today and babysat for you yeah. for a good few hours when you went upstairs <laughs> for a nap. So I've got my uses. Come on, I've got to sneak an hour. Me and the, me and the missus have got to sneak that an hour. That was an hour and a half. Yeah, but you loved it. <laughs> you, you, <laughs> you loved it. What were you, you playing ghosts and it was Halloween coming up and you had your... Your little red horns on. The kids loved it. You know, you've got to give back to the kids sometimes, Owen. Absolutely. You know, you Absolutely. can't just be this long man, journeyman yeah. type of guy. Yeah. You know, you've got to give back to the kids. And you gave back to the kids today. And that was good to see. And, you know, judging by the normal nastiness that you are, and the character that you are, yeah. the Scrooge that you are. Yeah, yeah. Is, it was good to see. It was good to see that side of you. I've not seen that in a long, long time. Thank you. Now, a young man, I think you know him, Leon Britton. Leon. Uh, Leon's question, is it? Who's that? As a, well, exactly. Maybe is he was, still a lot? Is he still playing? Maybe that was part of your problem because his question is, <laughs> yeah. when you dropped him yeah. and you put a couple of guys in front, yeah. these are not his words, uh, a couple of the young boys. So what, you're fabricating what he said now? Ah, you've got to add legs to a story. Of course you do, yeah, go on. His question is, when you, when you left him out and said to him, Leon, I'm going to phase you out here. Yeah. <laughs> the question is, and these are his words, what the fuck were you thinking? Because <laughs> it what? cost you your job. <laughs> that, again his words no I stand by it you know Leon's extremely old and um, yeah it's a myth mm. you know and you know what he's doing now and you know this so called saviour of Swansea City pulling the wool over people's yeah, he's eyes pulling the wool over and he'd been doing it for years yeah. you know if it wasn't for me and Ashley Williams positioning him mm. and you know taking him after training every day to just work on a simple five yard pass which is the only thing he could do yeah. you know he never passed the ball over five yards so the fact that we perfected that, the fact that me and him, me and Ashley Williams continuously positioned him in the right place to make him look a million dollars and not do our jobs for us. You know, I think that added value to him and, and created the myth that is Leon Britton nowadays. And um, yeah, and he's been pulling the wall over everyone's eyes ever since. So um, the fact that I exposed him, um, I think hit a nerve and obviously he used politics and and did what he could, that skullduggery to, skullduggery. to, to get me out of to get me out of the club and, and to leave himself as the myth of a legend. He's a, he's a powerful man down there now, isn't he? He very much is. There's many people who have very lost much their is. jobs. Very much so, and and he's one to be very careful of. <laughs> <laughs> Last question. If you could have me speaking with anybody on the podcast, someone realistically that we could get, have you got any name in mm. mind? Good question. I think... Um, Someone interesting with a story to tell. Would it have to be high profile? Well, anybody really. Does that help you? Anybody, um, mate. Me personally, I think you should speak to Tom Butler. Oof. I think that would be a very interesting conversation. I think it's safe to say that he probably had the, the best banter in the changing room in terms of topical. Very intelligent guy. Very deep guy. <laughs> Um, very deep subjects that he would talk about mm. that could be interesting for you. Mm. Um, Just to see a different, because it's important to get a different perspective of it is. different characters, isn't it? It is. Um, who else? Who else will we speak to? Um, Graham Jones, oh. who once described you and the way that you played football um, and everything about you as pedestrian. No, hey, whoa, whoa, whoa. Well, get he, the quote right. He quoted you as pedestrian. Fucking pedestrian. So he claimed that the way you played football and just your whole persona was very, very pedestrian. And 
at that point when he said it, I think the whole change room nodded and realised, you know what, Bonnie, you're spot on. I remember that game. Graham Jones, you are spot on with that. I remember that game. And well, I think in the same, the same change room at the same time, just after that, he called me and Ashley Williams a pair of empty crisp packets floating about <laughs> I, in the wind. I'm sure it was the same game. Yeah, it was. I think we beat Hull. It was. Was it the whole game? That so basically, that I think Graham Jones thought that the centre forward was bullying me and Ashley Williams and that we were basically like empty crisp pack packets that were floating about in the wind. And I was playing ahead of you. Yeah. In fucking second gear. <laughs> Pedestrian. He was spot on. Graham Jones was always spot on. He obviously can spot a player. He knows the ins and outs of these <laughs> young football players. Gary... I'm a bit disappointed you didn't bring the bottle. You're obviously a bit tight with the Chateau Neuf de Pape. Oh, do you... So maybe after one glass, it's done. No, I can so top at this you point, up. There's always plenty. I would like to thank you for taking your time out your busy schedule. Um, I think the chat went better now that you've had an hour and a half of a nap. Yeah. Uh, I'm ready for a sleep now after doing that babysitting. Thank you very much, Gary. No, a pleasure, Owen. I'm just, I'm just hopeful that the five listeners that you probably have... Um, Enjoy the podcast and um, yeah, always a pleasure, man. Yeah, come out. Whatever. There we have it. Another one done. Always a pleasure catching up with Gary. Hopefully it was an enjoyable one for you guys as well. Keep banging the drum. Keep going on about it. Uh, but please subscribe. Please leave a review or whether it's on iTunes or whatever app you get your podcasts from. Plenty of different ones out there. Um, it means a lot. That's that's what we go off in the podcasting industry. Um, a subscription just means the next episode will automatically download onto your phone. Uses up a bit of your Wi-Fi, but that's about it. Costs you nothing. Um, so that's very much appreciated. Five-star reviews would be wonderful. If not, and you feel, feel it necessary to give less, that's your prerogative. Leave a little reason. Always looking to improve, always looking for feedback, uh, but appreciate once again you listening. Um, please keep doing so. Thank you very much. Until the next time, farewell. And the long man.